0: It may be helpful, Um, we read the first 17 verses, we're actually covering all of chapter 4, but when we cover big chunks like this, it may be helpful in your notes for me to provide an outline, and as we were reading the text and praying over it, I was thinking about it. So for chapter 4, it starts off, you could say, signs, right? Doubt or disbelief, provision, obedience, crisis, signs performed, and then... The last part of the text is so interesting faith and worship. People believe and they worship God. And so I know that was quick, but I'll try to provide that each week in your notes. To a quick summary or an outline of what we're going to be looking at, just so you don't miss the forest for the trees. Well, the title for my sermon this morning is The Faithfulness of God. And really, that's the, the title of the Bible. Amen? I mean, God is faithful. From Genesis to Revelation, He is faithful. The big idea, the supernatural signs of God reveal His power, His presence, and provision and are meant to engender faith. The supernatural signs of God reveal His power, presence, and provision and are meant to engender faith. Who's ever told someone, an unbelieving friend or or family member, maybe a stranger on an airplane, Jesus is Lord Jesus is Savior, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and then you were met with the response, prove it. Who's been there? (laughs) Prove it. How do you know? Prove it. When people demand evidence for the existence of God and the truthfulness of Christianity, where do you point them? Where do we point them? Where are we supposed to point them? Be sure... To point them to the two greatest signs of Christianity, which are what? The cross and the resurrection. As one scholar writes, these signs reveal God's reality and character. Who's thankful for the signs, the miracles of God in the Word of God? The, the signs of the Lord, and they appear throughout Scripture, point both to the reality of God. And reveal his awesome character and great faithfulness. So I would say this morning look to the signs and be encouraged. I want to do a few things this morning. I want to answer really three big questions. Whenever you're reading and studying God's Word, one of the questions that we didn't ask two weeks ago that we should always ask is what does this text reveal about me? What does this text teach us about humanity? So we'll look at that first. Secondly, we'll look at what does our passage, Exodus 4, teach us about God? And then number three, how does it point to Jesus in the gospel? So number one, what do we learn about humanity in Exodus 4? We, everybody say we. Because as, as Aaron prayed, I mean, we're, we're like Moses in many respects, right? Um, we, like Moses, naturally doubt God And are reluctant to trust and obey. And this is due to our what? What do we all have in common? What have we all inherited? A sin nature. And because of sin, we seek time and time again to go our way and not God's way. Lord, help us. And you will. So why is Moses' reluctance, his unbelief, so surprising? Were you surprised by this? I mean, What just happened in chapter 3? Burning bush, God shows up, God speaks, He reveals Himself at both the macro level and the micro level. I am the creator of all, but I'm also the God of promise, the God of covenant keeping, and I've come to act on my promise. And you're thinking, oh man, what else do you need, Moses? Come on, Mo! Why is His reluctance, His unbelief so surprising? Because God has already shown up, burning bush. He's already promised to be with him. He's, again, revealed himself as both the creator and the covenant-keeping God, the God who has shown up, who has declared, it is time to act on my saving promises. Now, who's fought, who's served in our nation's military? Raise your hand. Who's played in sports, athletics growing up, been on a team? Okay, so when soldiers go into battle or athletes take the field, they first want to know the plan. What's the plan, coach? What's the plan, sir? Knowing the plan instills confidence and courage. God has already revealed to Moses all that he will do. Let's go back to Exodus 3, 19 and 21. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I, God's giving the plan, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. God will deliver his people, okay? And God will provide for their needs. God promises rescue favor, and provision, and yet Moses does what? All right, God, let's go, I'm in. No, he he doubts God. Even in the face of divine revelation, mankind doubts and disbelieves. Let me give you three examples from Scripture, and then we'll look at how God responds. Sarah, Genesis 18, 10-14. Zechariah, this is JB's dad, John the Baptist. Luke 1, 18-20. And then Thomas, one of the twelve This is John 20, 24 to 25. So how does God respond to unbelief? He shows himself faithful and powerful. So in Sarah's case, he provides Abraham and Sarah with a son, Isaac, as promised, even when it seems impossible from a human point of view. In Zechariah's case, again, God provides a son, John the Baptist, even when it seems impossible from a human point of view. In the case of Thomas, Jesus shows up and says, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side do not disbelieve but believe what about Moses how does god respond to Moses reluctance already in chapter 3 we have seen Moses unbelief exodus 311 but Moses said to god who am i and what did i say 2 weeks ago that's the wrong question what's the right question who is the lord but what does Moses say Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? How does God respond? Exodus 3.12, he said, But I will be with you. I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. He promises to be with Moses for the purpose of rescue. Moses' doubt is met with the promise of divine presence and divine rescue. So in Exodus 4, Moses expresses doubt and unbelief two times, and then flat out tries to excuse himself from God's commission. So let's examine these two verses and then look carefully at how God responds. And then we're going to ask the question, what do we learn about God's character in the first half of Exodus 4. So Exodus 4 1, then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And then Exodus 4 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not what? I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. God, nothing's changed. I'm, I'm not a speaker. But I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And then Exodus 4:13, what he said, Oh, my Lord, please, send someone else. <laughs> In Exodus 4.1, let's kind of follow the flow here. In Exodus 4.1, Moses preemptively blames the people, Israel, for his doubt and disbelief. In Exodus 4.10, he points inward. I'm not a speaker, Lord. He is constrained by human limitations. That's his problem. He focuses on what man is prone to do, rather than on what God promises to do. One more time. Moses focuses on what man is prone to do rather than on what God promises to do. And we do this all the time, don't we? I do it. We have a perspective problem. We fail to fix our eyes on the promises of God and the Word of God. We get so focused on our circumstances, we forget who God is as revealed where and this is going to happen more often than not when you fail to be here. When you're not here in the word regularly, you are going to suffer from a perspective problem. You're going to be overwhelmed by your circumstances because you're not regularly being exposed to the promises of God in the word of God. So what is the remedy to this perspective problem? Where should we be church regularly? In the word. In the word. Does that make sense? Okay, finally in Exodus 4:13, <laughs> You're thinking, man, the audacity. Moses flat out requests to be excused from God's mission. And how does the Lord respond to each instance of doubt and disbelief? First, he promises three supernatural signs in Exodus 4, verses 2 to 9. Turning Moses' staff into a snake afflicting Moses' hand with a leprous disease and then immediately restoring it, and then finally turning the the water from the Nile River into what? Into blood. And the purpose, okay, everybody say purpose. There's a purpose behind these signs, as in all the signs of Scripture. The purpose of these signs would be to instill faith amongst the people of God, namely faith that the Lord had indeed spoken to Israel I'm sorry, spoken to Moses, appeared to Moses, and promised deliverance. Faith in the Lord and his promise to rescue. A quick word on Moses' staff, which was like a shepherd's crook. In verse 17, God says, And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. In verse 20, the staff is referred to as the staff of God. That's really interesting, the staff of God. T. Desmond Alexander writes, and I wish I could do an Australian accent, but I'm not. In the ancient world, a staff or rod was sometimes a symbol of authority derived from a deity. When Moses or Aaron uses this staff, it symbolizes God's authority and power at work. Second, God responds to Moses' speech impediment with the promise of divine enablement and instruction. So Exodus 4, 11 to 12. So first, God responds by promising signs Second, God responds by promising divine help, signs and divine help. What do we call that? Grace. Grace. I mean, what grace? What patience God has towards his people. Exodus 4, 11 to 12, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Again, Moses is again found looking in the wrong place. He says to the Lord, I am not what? I'm not eloquent. I am slow of speech and tongue. Now, it's interesting that Moses is so hung up on the senses. Earlier, Moses complains that the people of Israel won't do what they won't listen. They won't listen. They won't hear. And here, he complains by saying, I can't speak. I'm not a speaker, Lord. And how does God respond? He points to himself. He points to himself. Again, Moses had a perspective problem. He's looking in the wrong places. This is where we, like Moses, so often fail to look. God says, I created the mouth. I mean, this response is so good. This is like the end of Job, right? I mean, listen to what God says. This is, well, I'm not going to say it because that may confuse some, but it's one of those like, wow. I mean, just listen up. God is about to make his point in a very dramatic and cool way. I was going to say mic drop, but I'm not going to say that. But young people, you know what I'm talking about. God says, I created the mouth. I give speech and I give sight. Whoa! Like Moses, you're so worried about them not hearing and you not being able to speak, but I'm the one who gives these senses. I give the mouth. I give the, I've, I've created it all. I'm sovereign over it. This is the major reason why I think so many of us don't share the gospel. We say they won't listen. Or, I'm not eloquent. We forget it is God who gives spiritual sight to the spiritually blind. It is God who unstops deaf ears to the truthfulness of the gospel. Amen? And we're just called to be faithful and to trust the Lord. In Exodus 4.14, we see that the Lord has had enough. Oh. So again, God is not to be trifled with. God is patient, he's slow to anger, but he's not to be trifled with. He is patient, yes, but he's also wrathful. Exodus 4:14, 4, then the avenger of I'm sorry, the anger, then the anger of the Lord was kindled. It's never a good thing. Against Moses and he said, "Is there not Aaron your brother the Levite? I know that he can speak well." What does God do? He provides Aaron. God will speak his words to Moses, and then Moses will speak God's words to Aaron, his brother. Exodus 4.16, he shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. The point is, God will be heard. Amen? God will be heard. His plans cannot and will not be thwarted. Let's talk about this, the purpose of the signs. What's the purpose of the signs, the great signs of God in Scripture? Exodus 7:5 and we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. Exodus 7:5 The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So through his signs what will the people of Egypt know that he is the his the Lord. Exodus 10:2 And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians in what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. What is the purpose of the signs, So that both Egypt, the nations, and Israel might know that He is the, he's the Lord. Well, let's go to the New Testament. John 9, 1-3. And this is why, God willing, after we finish Exodus, we're going to jump straight into John's Gospel. okay? Because these I mean, just go so well together. John 9, 1-3. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then, of course, John 20, 30 and 31. This is John's purpose statement for his gospel. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, and that by believing that you may have life in his name. So, signs throughout the scriptures are intended to reveal the power of God, they are intended to engender faith and move those privy to such signs to awe and worship. We are meant to see the signs and say, Yes, God, you are all powerful, there is none like you, you are holy and awesome. And we bow down. (laughs) Through signs, God seeks to both confirm his messengers and his message. Through his signs, he reveals his glory. And he reveals his glory so that we might glorify him. That is the purpose of the signs. Through his signs, he reveals his glory. And he reveals his glory so that we might what? Glorify him. All right, here's the second question. What do we learn about God? in the first half of Exodus 4. First, he is powerful, as seen in his signs. May we never forget that. God is powerful, as seen in his signs. Secondly, he is present, as seen in his promise to be with Moses. He's present. He's not aloof. God is not aloof. He is personal and present. Number three, he is patient. Somebody say amen. He is patient, as seen, in his ongoing dialogue With and provision for Moses, despite Moses' unbelief. Now, I think more than anything, God's patience stands out. Again, who's thankful for God's patience? This is a major theme in Scripture. The patience of God, a.k.a. God is slow to what? He's slow to anger. So Exodus 34, 6, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Romans 2.4 Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. His patience is meant to lead us to repentance. And then 2 Peter 3.15 And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. (laughs) Why is God patient? Why is God so patient with Moses? I mean, Moses is kind of a gooberhead. What a goofball, dude. Like I get, but we do the same thing. Why is God patient with us? You're like, "Come on, dude." Like God reveals himself in fire, he speaks audibly, at the micro level reveals himself, at the macro level reveals himself, the creator and the God of promise. And yet, Moses They're not going to listen. I'm not a good speaker. He's British, by the way. (laughs) Why is God patient? It's for our good. It's for our salvation. It is to display His grace, mercy, and love. Let's quickly examine now the second half of Exodus 4 and ask the same question, what do we learn about God's character? Now, several things, this is, there's two books that were written, one by Walter Kaiser and then one by F.F. Bruce, and they're both titled Hard Sayings, right? Kaiser, who was the president where I went to seminary, he wrote the one in the Old Testament, Hard Sayings in the Old Testament. F.F. Bruce, New Testament scholar out of Manchester, Hard Sayings in the New Testament. We're about to come across a very hard saying, so get ready. But again, the question, what do we learn about God's character in the second half of Exodus 4? Several things unfold in Exodus 4, 18 to 31. Now, I'm going to summarize. Okay, so we're going to be kind of 30,000 feet, and then we're going to swoop down. So here we go. Moses, Moses leaves Midian, and he goes back to Egypt. Moses obeys the Lord. Moses, and this is the hard saying, Moses is almost struck down, but his wife intervenes. Wifes, moms, thank you. Israel believes in worships. And what a cool note to end on. So the Lord speaks to Moses, preparing and instructing him once again for what is to come. This is Exodus 4, 21 to 23. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. But I will harden his heart. And we'll talk a lot more about that in the weeks to come. But I will harden his heart. What does that mean? So that he will not let the people go. (laughs) Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Somebody say, whoa. The kids got it. (laughs) Parents, you got a long way to go. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Let's talk about sonship sonship god relates to his people the way a father relates to his children the god of the bible is a relational god amen he's a relational god a loving god a compassionate god he reveals himself as a father tim chester writes israel is god's firstborn because they were the first nation to be god's people today they are joined by the gentiles a reality anticipated in Exodus twelve thirty eight. It is a theme that will unfold through the Bible story, both in terms of rebirth and adoption. Until John says, "See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God." And that is what we are. It's First John three one. Not only is God fatherly, but He is sovereign. Okay, so again, now we're looking at the second half of Exodus, asking the question Exodus four. What do we learn about God's character? He's fatherly. And number two, he's sovereign. In verse 21, God says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. And God does this to reveal his power before Israel and the people of Egypt. He does it for his glory so that both the nations and Israel might what? They might know that he is the the Lord. And next, here's the hard saying. Are you ready? (laughs) Next. It looks like, this is the crisis. It looks like the story is about to end abruptly. It it looks like before things really get kicked off, it's all over. What takes place in Exodus 4, 24 to 26, appears both puzzling and strange. Let's read it together. So again, he's left Midian, he's headed to Egypt. Moses obeys. Okay, here we go. At a lodging place on the way... The Lord met him and sought to put him to death. What? Who? Moses. The Lord sought to put Moses to death. But I I thought God had called Moses to go and be his deliverer. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. (laughs) what just happened? God was about to visit his wrath upon Moses, and then we have Zipporah's actions, and then what does the text say? So God let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. All right, maybe you got it all figured out, but let's talk about it. Again, after hearing this, you may respond like Marvin Gaye and say, what's going on? What what is going on here? Three words. Three words: justice, covenant, and intercession. Say these words with me. Justice. Covenant. Oh, we're not we're tired today. And intercession. Okay. Now, listen. God expects and demands what? Obedience. And will therefore punish what? Disobedience. God is just. Here's what's going on here. You ready? Okay. It appears that Moses has not circumcised his son and was being held responsible. Circumcision was at the heart of the Abrahamic covenant that God was getting ready to act on. The very covenant, again, that God was about to act on. Moses had not done his part as a father. He had not circumcised his son. I'm not going to explain circumcision. Circumcision. Parents, it's Mother's Day. Mom, have fun for your younger kids. The act itself, let's talk about what it did. The act itself, cutting was involved, okay? And actually covenant, the athiki. I mean it means in Greek, cutting, right? Cutting. The act itself marked out the Israelites as God's people. And it was a physical sign of their trust in the Lord to act on His saving promises. A lack of circumcision signified a lack of trust in the Lord to act. And circumcision further pointed to a more significant reality, the circumcision of the heart, a heart wholly committed to the Lord. So finally, what happens is, Moses' wife, because Moses has not been obedient, he's marked for judgment. God's going to punish him. But Moses' wife intervenes on behalf of her husband and son, right? The shedding and application of blood was done on behalf of who? On behalf of Moses. The language of bridegroom of blood to me is the poorest way of saying, by the shedding of blood, I have regained my husband. He has been spared. Oh, Oh, you guys seeing this? salvation through the shedding of blood all of this is meant to be a pointer first to the passover but ultimately to the to the cross god's circumcised people trusting in the lord to act would be spared that's what happens at the passover god provides the people trust and the lord spares the uncircumcised Egyptians, not trusting in the Lord, would be judged. This is what's interesting. Moses was acting as an Egyptian and not as a member of God's family. This whole scene declares salvation through the shedding of blood, a major theme in Scripture. Finally, the people of Israel are gathered The supernatural signs are performed, and the people of Israel believe, and they worship. Exodus 4, 30 and 31, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people what? They believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. God is faithful, amen? Amen. Moses was concerned. Moses was reluctant. He doubted. But God came through as always. God always comes through. Again, what a beautiful note for Exodus 4 to end on. The people of Israel believe in worship. Belief, faith, and worship is the appropriate response to divine revelation. Unfortunately, this will not always be the case with Israel. So let me summarize. This is, again, question 3, which is really part of 2. What do we learn about God's character in the second half of Exodus 4? Now, I've covered all these, but let me just kind of give them to you quickly. He is sovereign. He is fatherly. He is just. He is faithful. And he is worthy of worship. That's what we learn about God's character in the second half of Exodus 4. He is sovereign. He is fatherly. He is just. He is faithful. He is worthy of worship. Final question. Last question. How does Exodus 4 point to Jesus? And we're going to move quickly here, so pay attention. How does this incredible chapter in this wonderful book point to our beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ, and the work he would accomplish through his life, death, and resurrection, which we call what? Gospel, good news. Number one, oh, Jesus is the greater Moses, who would trust the Lord completely. Aren't you thankful Jesus, as the ultimate rescuer, is not like Moses? I'm thankful, otherwise the cross wouldn't have worked, right? Jesus is the greater Moses who would trust the Lord completely. Moses, the deliverer of God's people, wavers in his belief. He makes excuses and he tries to avoid God's commission on his life. Jesus, somebody say Jesus. Jesus, on the other hand, is perfectly obedient to the Father, the Father sends the Son and the Son goes. Not kicking and screaming. This is not cosmic child abuse. This is the Son going, giving His life, living the life we could not live. Philippians 2, eight, In Jesus being formed, or being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming what? Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Aren't you thankful that Jesus was Obedient. Mark 14, 36, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And then John 6, 38, For I, Jesus said, have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And I love what Sproul said, R.C. Sproul. He said, Christ not only died for us, but he lived for us as well. Again, Jesus is the greater Moses, who trusted the Lord, obeyed the Lord completely. Secondly, Jesus is the greater Aaron who speaks the very words of God. Jesus is the greater Aaron who speaks the words of God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word of God, the perfect what? The perfect revelation, the perfect expression of God. John 12, 49, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has Himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Number three, Jesus is the greater intercessor. Again, Zipporah intercedes, intervenes on behalf of her husband and their son. But Jesus is the greater intercessor. He has stepped in and made a way for sinners like us to be covered. Amen? Amen? As the poor stepped in for Moses, so Christ has stepped in for us. Oh, isn't that cool? 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation. For our sins only? Oh, no, But also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus applied his own blood, not the blood of another. That's the difference. Jesus, again... The poor didn't apply her blood. Her blood wasn't shed. The blood of another was shed. But Jesus shed his own blood for us. Amen? Romans 3.25, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Again, what happened to stay the hand of God against Moses? It was the shedding and application of blood. Christ, as the once-for-all sacrifice, shed His blood for His people, staying the wrathful hand of God by appeasing God's wrath against sin. Jesus died in place of His people, absorbing God's wrath for us. Amen? Jesus in our place by His grace to bring us into His space. Romans 5.9 Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. What a beautiful pointer to the cross. Amen? And then Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And then finally, Jesus is the true son. He is the true son that has made a way for sinners like us to be adopted into God's family. The only way to be counted a son is, or child of God, is by being united by faith to the Son of God, capital S, Jesus Christ. Amen? So, if you would like to be a part of God's family, you must trust in the Son. And when you belong to the Son, you can now call God what? Father. Father. John 1, 12 and 13, but to all who did receive Him who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then Galatians 3.26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Through the saving work of Jesus, God would reconcile a people to himself. A people marked by what? How, How is Israel marked at the very end of our passage? What are they doing? They believe in they... Worship. And Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, would rescue a people to himself marked by faith and worship. John four twenty three and 24. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Let me end with this. Three quick practice steps. Here's the application. Number one. Trust Christ because He is present, powerful, and provides. Again, what do we learn about God's character in our passage? He's present, He's powerful, and He provides. So trust Jesus because He is present, powerful, and provides. Number two, worship Christ. Worship Christ because He has intervened to save His people and adopt us into the family of God. Why worship Jesus? Because He's the Savior. And through Him... Through faith in Him, we can be a part of God's family. And number three, proclaim Christ's work of rescue to others. All of us who have trusted in Jesus have been given the Spirit of God to speak the very words of God, both to the people of God and the lost. So proclaim Christ's work of rescue to others. Colossians 3.16, "...let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom." And then 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Where is the gospel seen in our passage? Is the gospel only found in the New Testament? No. Read Paul in Galatians. It's preached in the Old Testament as well. Amen? And where do we see it this morning? With Moses and his wife. Zipporah, we have a beautiful picture of salvation through the shedding of blood. Jesus too shed his blood for the salvation of sinners like you and me. We say it every week. Jesus, again, he lived the life we could not live. He's the greater Moses, he's the greater Aaron, he's the greater Zipporah. But then he died the death we deserve we got to get this, okay? So again, I, I was talking to some people about this the other day. We owe a debt. And what is our debt? Perfect life. We owe God a perfect life. Why? Because he's perfectly holy. He deserves it. He's worthy of it. He demands it. And all of us, can any of us raise our hand and say, yes, that's me? Surely I fall into that category. Don't you dare. I will form tackle you off this stage. In love. <laughs> in love. But no, none of All of us would honestly say, none of us, yes, no, come on, I've not lived a perfect life. But one has, Jesus. Okay, so that's great news, but I've still lived an imperfect life. I've sinned against a holy God. I deserve God's wrath and punishment. Oh, the good news gets better. Not only did Jesus live the life we could not live, but he took the punishment we deserve. Amen? So he lived a life we couldn't live, grace, and then he died in our place at the cross. Grace? And then he didn't stay yet. He rose from the dead, proving all his claims to be true. Prove it. Look at the empty tomb. Again, the Bible, we see all these wonderful signs, but the greatest signs are the cross and empty tomb. Everything points to that. Amen? Christ lived, he died, and he rose again. Trust him. Worship him. Gather with God's people. Trust him. Worship him. And gather with God's people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your signs. We thank you for your amazing works. As we learned last week, God, your general revelation that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim his handiwork. God, we, we see your majesty and your power and your glory and all that your hands have made. And then we look to your word and we look to the events of salvation history and we see that God, you are gracious and merciful and slow to anger. God, you're faithful. Father, you sent the Son to live the life we could not live. How incredible is that? A sinless, perfect life, fulfilling the law. And then, Jesus, you died. You were pierced, you were crushed. The punishment that brought us peace you took upon yourself. And then you rose again. You're alive. You are the living Savior. And we have this truth revealed to us in your word. And I pray that in response we would believe and worship. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who is not yet trusted in Jesus and bent the knee to the one true King, Holy Spirit, move in them. Give them life. Help them to see their sad and hopeless state apart from Christ, but help them to see at the same time the beauty of Christ and the hope that is found in Him. Move the lost to trust in Jesus and move us, your church, to go boldly into our relational worlds, even into our homes, into our schools, into our neighborhoods, and to take this good news. And to trust that, God, you're the one who formed the mouth, you made the ears, you give spiritual sight, you won't stop ears. Father, help us to be found faithful, preaching your word, preaching the good news. And through that, we pray that you would save many for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. <laughs>